You're listening to Straight from the Pulpit. Here you will find sermons taken directly from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. We preach Christ, study the Word of God, and help the Christian grow spiritually by applying God's Word to their lives. For more information or to read the pastor's blog, go to sbcverona.com. That is sbcverona.com. You can take your Bibles and go over to Isaiah chapter number 51 this evening. Isaiah chapter 51. Moving into a new chapter after it took us a few weeks there to get through uh, chapter number 50. But chapter number 51 continues to talk about Jesus Christ, you know, the Messiah, talks about a temporary or a, a short-term fulfillment of the prophecy. And also, there's a long-term fulfillment of prophecy here as we read through chapter 51. But one of the things that we're going to see, especially here in the beginning of the chapter, is God trying to get across the message that His people need to fear Him. We'll especially see that in, in verses, I think, 7 and 8 maybe, uh, where He's telling them, no, fear me, don't fear man. Be more concerned with me. And, and then he's going to talk about Abraham, how God did something great through Abraham and Sarah. Just one person. But yet God did something so great through that one person because that one person was righteous and yielded to God. Sometimes we think that we have to have an army or we have to have a, a, a whole group of people at a church to be able to effectively accomplish anything for the Lord. And the fact is, what God needs is a single, dedicated, and surrendered Christian to accomplish his will in any one place. Well, we're in Isaiah chapter number 51. We're also going to see several times in this chapter, he's going to say, like the very first three words of the chapter, hearken unto me. What he's saying is, hey, listen up. So when you see hearken unto me, you know, if we were going to put it in modern verbiage, it's, hey, listen up, listen to me. Stop what you're doing. Drop what you're doing. Put, you know, put down your coloring paper, you know, uh, Freddie, and put down your, your phone or whatever it is and, and stop and listen to me right now because I have something that is really important to say. So we read verses one through three. Isaiah 51, beginning in verse one, it says this, hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah that bear you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. I cannot help but read these particular three verses and be encouraged by them myself. Now, I understand that Isaiah is speaking to, you know, ancient Israel at this particular time. And he's talking about, as we well know, um, you know, being taken uh, into captivity by the Babylonians and then the Medes and Persians taking them over. And then them finally being released and allowed to go back to Jerusalem once more and begin to rebuild. And I know he's talking about that temporary or short-term fulfillment, but... I also can't help but recognize that it is the same God here that speaks to them. He has that same attitude towards me. 
And so I draw quite a bit of encouragement today as I was going through these passages and looking at them. I I drew quite a bit of encouragement from these verses. So he says, listen to me, guys. Listen to me. If you desire to live righteous, if you desire to seek the Lord, I mean, is there anybody in the room that would be willing to raise your hand and say, well, you know what? I don't really want to be righteous. I don't really want to be a good person. I don't really want to be in the Lord's will. I mean, anybody willing to to raise their hand and say that? If you did, I'd think you probably weren't paying any attention, right? Um, Or you're a teenager. (laughs) Sometimes they raise their hand at the wrong time on purpose. But uh, none of us will be willing to say that. No, I don't want to live righteously. So in essence, then he's talking to you. Hey, listen up. Do you want to live righteously? Well, yeah, everybody kind of does. Everybody has this internal desire to do what's right because doing what's right is pleasing. Doing what's right, they, they have this internal desire to want to do what's right. Now they also have the flesh. And far too often, they just choose the flesh because they've always chosen the flesh. Because the flesh is so much stronger than their spirit, many, most, many times because they're not even saved. They don't have the Holy Spirit, and so their flesh is always going to be stronger than their spirit to do what is right. You see, as Christians, do you have the desire to do what's right? I think, yeah. I mean, even a backslidden Christian in their heart, they don't want to have the reputation of being a backslidden Christian. (laughs) They don't want to have the reputation of a rebel. In their heart, now they may not say that or behave that way on the outside, but in their heart, they want to do what's right. They want the pathway back to righteousness. They want the pathway back. You know, sometimes uh, somebody will backslide and get far away from the Lord. And in their heart and in their mind, they want to get things right before God. They want to start doing things right again. They want to be back in church. They want to be reading their Bible again, but they know how hard it's going to be to do that again. I mean, imagine you've backslidden away from church. You've gotten involved in some stuff. You've dropped out of church. It's hard to come back to those doors again. It requires a good deal of humility to walk in those doors again. Because, you know, everybody knows, you know, how you've been behaving. And boy, it, it takes a good bit of humbling. And we can make it harder on them. We can make it harder on them by by stabbing them in the back and talking about them and spreading gossip or being rude and unkind to them and telling them to just hit the pavement if they don't agree with us and that sort of thing. And we can make it that much more difficult for them to come back. And he says, do you desire righteousness? Do you desire the Lord? Well, I can't speak for anybody else, but yes, I do desire righteousness. Yes, I do seek the Lord. Unfortunately, sometimes I also seek my flesh. Unfortunately, sometimes I also don't follow after righteousness at all times. But yes, I desire that. And he speaks to Israel here. He says, okay, then I want you to look at something. Here is an object lesson for you. When I was in junior church growing up, uh, Mr. Ted would do an object lesson every single service and uh, or every single junior church service on Sunday mornings. And I remember one time, you know, his object lesson was, you know, Wise men build his house upon the rock, the foolish man on the sand. And so he had a big old pan up there and he had sand and he was trying to build this house on it. And then he poured water on it. And then, of course, the sand all washed away and the house collapsed. And, you know, and he uses this object lesson. Another time he had a tree and he taped, you know, fruit, you know, you know apples, bananas and oranges to the to the branches of that tree. And, of course, you know, uh, the question is, well, what kind of tree is this? 
you know, little kids, oh, it's a banana tree. Well, yeah, but it's got apples on it too. What kind of tree is this? You know, you shall know a tree by its fruit. Um, and, you know, different object lessons. And I've talked about some of them in the past before too. God uses our, well, Isaiah is using an object lesson, inspiration, being inspired by God to say this. I want you to look back into your past and I want you to look at the rock that you have been hewn from. In other words, go back to the quarry. You know, the quarry is that mountain where they would go and they would use hammers and chisels and they would cut out large chunks of stone from the mountainside. And then they would take that stone and they would, maybe it didn't make it very far from the mountainside, but they cut it. But then they would begin to cut it into smaller stones that they would then be able to use for building. And then those smaller stones that were shaped uh, would be carried off, would be put on barges or on carts and whatever and brought to wherever they were to be used to build with. And he says, go back to the quarry where you have been hewn from. So you can see that, you know, you're a chip off the old block in a sense. Go back and look how things were for your forefathers. He says, go back to the hole where the pit where you were digged, where you came from. Because where you came from is going to tell us a whole lot about you. And then so he says, what am I talking about here? Why am I talking about quarries? And why am I talking about holes and pits and dirt? Well, he says, look unto Abraham, your father. Okay, now we're going way back, going back to Abraham. This is, uh, you know, before Israel was even a nation. This is before Isaac was even born, uh, before Isaac was able to have his own two sons, before any of those things ever occurred. He says, go back to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, um, who birthed you, you know, via Isaac. He says, I called Abraham alone, and I blessed him, and I increased him. Now, this is a comfort to me. Sometimes it's, it's very tempting for us to think that we need to gather a certain kind of people or a certain number of people around us in order for us to be successful, or in order for us to get momentum. But that's not what God needs. What God needs is somebody like Abraham, who's willing to pick his family up and say, all right, God, you want me to go over there? Off I go. Where am I going? Can I, can I at least, you know, give my family a, an address to send my mail to or to forward my mail to? Nope. Nope. Sorry, Abraham. No forwarding address. I'm not telling you where you're going. Just go that way. Okay. Okay. Here I go. With my family and all my stuff, we're just going to pack up and we're going to start walking that way. And he just continues to follow God. And then God, because of his surrendered heart, uses him greatly and uses him, especially here in this sense, to build a great nation. He says, I called him alone and I blessed him. Not only that, I increased him. Well, God, you want me to, to sell my property and you want me to quit my job and you want me to, to go on the, just on the run in a sense? How am I supposed to provide for my family? How am I supposed to take care of myself? God says, if you just obey me, don't worry about it. And God not only blessed him, but he increased him in many ways. Now he turns back to Jerusalem. He says, for the Lord shall comfort Zion. The Lord shall comfort you. Remember Zion, this tallest mountain there in Jerusalem where the city is built. So the Lord is going to comfort you. He says he will comfort all her waste places. What does he mean by that? He does not talking about, you know, trash mountain. He's talking about or, or the city dump or something like that. He's talking about, you know, you go to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, and what did you find there? 
the walls were dilapidated. They were fallen down. Uh, they were just mounds of stone that was being grown over by trees and other, and other plants and stuff. And uh, people were coming and they were taking stones from those from the broken down walls and they were taking them to repair their own homes with. And most of the homes were laid waste. There was the, you know, the temple itself had been laid waste. There wasn't anything beautiful or glorious in Jerusalem anymore. And very few people even lived there anymore. He says, he's going to comfort Zion. He's going to comfort all of her waste places. He says, he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. I like where it says, he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. You know, a desert, wilderness, that's the exact opposite of a garden, you know. You uh, want a nice, comfortable beach to go and walk on where the sand is soft between your toes and uh, you want to go and be able to appreciate a sunset on the beach. Um, you don't want to go to a beach that has uh, not been taken care of by man. <laughs> you don't want to go to a natural wilderness beach. They are not pleasant places to be. Wilderness beaches are covered in sand spurs. You don't want to take your shoes off and broken shells everywhere and rocks and dead, you know, crabs and whatnot. Uh, there's fire ant mounds all over the place. You don't want to go to an all-natural beach like that, one that is wilderness, and walk around and try to enjoy yourself. You probably want to go to one that's been you know, combed through by man uh, and made clean and made nice. You know, wilderness is quite different from a garden, quite different from the Garden of Eden. Now, I don't know what the Garden of Eden, Eden must have been like. You know, I have in my mind what beautiful gardens are. But this was before corruption. This is before weeds and before decay. And man, what must the Garden of Eden have looked like? Was it, was it like a rainforest jungle, but with much fruit and the, the ants didn't bite? <laughs> you know, was it, was it like that? Uh, I don't understand. I don't know. I can't even imagine what this garden might have looked like. But he says, I could take... Jerusalem, I could take Zion's wilderness and turn into Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. We see two ends of the spectrum here. We see pain, suffering. We see a lack of life, discouragement, depression. We see that all that on one side. On the other side, we see blessing and we see increase and we see abundant life. We see also, as he goes on to say, joy and gladness. Thanksgiving. Why would you be, you know, what, what, what's the um, predecessor to Thanksgiving? The predecessor to Thanksgiving is giving. <laughs> um, you know, you receive something from God, and so now you are giving thanks to Him. Not only Thanksgiving, but the voice of melody. What does that mean? Singing. Lifting up their voice. There's going to be singing once more. You know, there's not going to be singing in a place that has been destroyed in a place where there's no food, in a place where there's no shelter. They're not going to be singing there, not out in the wilderness, not if, not if they're destitute. But if God comes and he blesses and he turns it into a beautiful garden, well, yeah, the singing returns. The thanksgiving returns, joy and gladness. You know what this makes me think of? It makes me think of our own personal spiritual lives. Sometimes, even as Christians, we find our spiritual life 
a desert, a wilderness, a wilderness with so many cliffs and so many sharp, jagged rocks and uh, coldness and hardness. And we find ourselves thinking, man, this, this spiritual walk, my Christian life is like a wilderness. It is like a desert. There's no life here. It's hard. There's pain. I don't, I'm not enjoying this. Why can't I have the spiritual flourishing like those people or that person has? Why can't I have the spiritual joy like that person has? Why can't I have the spiritual increase and life like that person has? Why do I have to be in a spiritual desert or a wilderness? And I'm not talking about when difficult times come throughout your life as they are going to do. But we're talking about a time, times in your life spiritually, where you are in the desert or in the wilderness because of your own doing. You have relegated yourself far away from the Lord. You know, Christian, God can take your spiritual desert and he can make it into a garden. We don't have to dwell in discouragement all the time. Oh yeah, the temptations are going to be there all all the way to the end of our life. But you don't have to dwell in a spiritual desert. You don't have to dwell in a spiritual wilderness where there is death and decay and discouragement and hardness and coldness. God wants to spring up a well of life in your heart, giving you this water which will never allow you to be thirsty again. A water, a well in you that will continue to spring up. He wants to bring that life into you. That's what he desires. But what might be preventing that? What might be keeping us as a Christian over here, walking in the midst of a spiritual desert? One of those things is unconfessed sin. Things that we are doing or thinking or saying sin in our lives that we are not confessing before God. It might be that we confess some sins a lot. But there's other things that we just refuse to recognize as sin. That we shove it into the corner and pretend it doesn't exist. God does not have the luxury of pushing sin off into a corner and pretending that it does not exist. He is painfully aware of all of the sin in my life. Unconfessed sin could be keeping me over in a spiritual desert where there is no blessing, where there is no increase, where there is no life, no growth. What else? A cold relationship with God. Of course, you could argue that not walking and talking with God is a sin, and yes, it is. As a Christian, he, we are to take our Bibles, and we are to read them, and we are to be praying, and we are to be consistently communing with Him and walking and talking with Him. And if you're in a spiritual desert, there's unconfessed sin, and there is a cold, dry relationship with Him. And those are the two big things that need to be remedied in a Christian's heart. If there is a spiritual desert. He shall make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. This is an encourage, these are encouraging verses to me, as I mentioned before, and that's the reason. 
Because even though it might seem like, man, I just keep struggling with this. And man, I just, I just can't seem to get victory over this. And man, it's hard. And, and man, why, why don't I, why can't I just, you know, be right with God? And why can't I just make the right decisions? And why do I just keep kicking against the prick, so to speak? You know, banging my head against the wall and struggling so much. Unconfessed sin and a cold, dead relationship with God. You see, there's no shortcut to spiritual success. This is how you do it. And the irony of it is, it doesn't cost me anything. If I had to go and burn candles or go and offer some sacrifice, you know, as humans, we desire to do that sort of thing. We want something we can do to earn salvation or to earn God's pleasing. Confessing my sin is is free. All it does is cost me a little bit of time to get down on my knees before the Lord. It costs me some emotional capital to think about my sin, to mourn over my sin, and to seek forgiveness for my sin, and to choose to forsake my sin. But it's free to do. A relationship with God, I don't have to put a dime in every 10 minutes so that I can talk to God. It's not a pay-to-play when it comes to conversing with Him. I don't need to purchase a stamp to send a letter to the Lord. I don't have to even sign up for an email address in order to talk with God. It is free, and it is instantaneous wherever I am, whatever I'm doing. He's always ready and listening. He's always waiting for me to reach out. But even those two things are free, and they cost us nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort. They are still some of the hardest things for us to do as Christians, isn't it? To consistently confess our sins every day, sincerely. And to maintain a healthy and a vibrant relationship with God. It's hard to keep up the Bible reading and the prayer. And even beyond just reading and praying, you know, just going through the motions. It's easy to sometimes just sit the Bible down and to just start perusing or start reading. It's easy to, to <clears throat> go into automatic mode with your prayer list and just go down the list and pray for all the people on that list. And you're not really engaged and you're not really talking to God. You're just praying. But a relationship is more than, than going through the motions and saying the words and, and reading the words. It is conversing with Him. Sometimes when you pray, do you ask questions to God? It's more than just, God bless this person, God heal this person, God bring this person back safely, amen. Do you ever ask God questions? Lord, why, why is this going on? Not that I expect Him to audibly answer me. <laughs> but that's part of conversation, isn't it? Asking questions, bearing your heart before Him. Making statements, and not just constantly making requests. There's a difference. But having an actual conversation with Him. So I like those verses. He wants, to, he wants to put me in that garden. And so He says to Israel, I'll comfort you in your, your wasted places. and Make your wilderness like Eden, your desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found there in thanksgiving in the voice of melody. And then in verse number four, he says it again, hearken unto me. 
So if, if I'm a teacher, you know, which I was a teacher, you get through part of your lesson, especially if you're an English teacher, first hour of the day, <laughs> then, then you especially got to do things like, you know, up here, eyes up here, everybody right here, put your books down, eyes on me, um, or you have everybody stand up and spin around and sit down. And of course, they're all like, what, what? And especially if they're in junior high and then they're giggling and then I got everybody's attention again. Or a few times where I took everybody out and made them run up and down the stairs 10 times. Now we're going to sit down. Everybody's struggling this morning. <laughs> so we're going to, we're going to go run some stairs and then go sit down now that the blood's pumping again. And maybe I can uh, get you to listen. So God says, hearken unto me, my people, listen up, give ear unto me. Oh, my nation. I like that. My people, my nation for a law shall proceed from me and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. My righteousness is near. My salvation is, and by the way, in verses four through six, you're going to see some similarities between uh, verses four through six and verses seven and eight. He's going to, he's going to start with the whole hearken unto me thing. He's going to talk about his righteousness and his salvation and give a promise about it. So I want you to notice some similarities as we read um, verses four through six and verses seven and eight, but there's also a difference in there too. I'll come to that later. Uh, let's see, my righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and mine arms shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me. Remember the isles? This is referring to the faraway nations, the heathen nations. They shall wait upon me, and mine arm, and on mine arm they shall they trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment. And they that dwell therein shall die in like manner, but my salvation shall be forever. And my righteousness shall not be abolished. In verse number eight, we see the same thing where he says, <clears throat> my righteousness shall be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. Similarities there. We'll talk about the difference in a little bit. We go back to verse four where he says, did I say verse four? Uh, yeah, verses four through six. That's what I meant. I don't know what I said. Uh, but we'll go back to verse number four. Hearken unto me, my people. Give ear unto me, O my nation, for the a law shall proceed from me. He says, I will make my judgment a rest for the light of the people. There's two words, three words in here I look at. We see judgment. He says, I'll make my judgment, my justice to the world, my discerning hand in the affairs of man. I will make my justice upon the world to be a what? A rest. There's peace there. There's rest. So my judgment upon the world is going to be a rest and also for a light. Three words I see in there. Judgment, rest, and light. It is to be a light of the people. Ultimately, when the, when the Lord regathers and blesses and saves Israel, he's going to shine forth his justice to the world, to Israel, and we read here to all the other nations, he says that the isles shall wait upon me. The isles are going to be looking toward God, waiting for him. They're going to rest upon his strong arms. Even the heathen will. And of course, we can look towards a long-term fulfillment of this prophecy in the book of Revelation when we see Jesus Christ descending down upon Jerusalem and beginning to rule and reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem. And the whole world looks to him during that time. He goes on to say, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke and the earth shall wax old like a garment. This sound familiar to you? Uh, here's a reference to 
what occurs in the second coming of uh, Jesus Christ. Um, you know, Matthew 24 talks about it. Second Peter 3 talks about it. Revelation 6 talks about it. Uh, when, when God brings justice uh, down to this earth and it's displayed to all Israel and to all the nations, the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, the earth shall wax old like a garment. And we read about how the heavens and the earth, these heavens and earth, shall pass away. And then there will be a new heaven and a new earth upon which we will dwell for an eternity with God. The judgment of the Lord here is not only evident in creation, but it's evident in man also. He says that they shall dwell, they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. And again, pointing to that time when the world is going to be destroyed by God. Uh, and the unbelievers, those who are rebelled against him, they will also be destroyed during that time. And here is that, that justice or judgment that God's talking about that's going to be a rest to Israel. Israel, the Jews, have been struggling against the world for their entire existence. Even to this very day, struggling, fighting for their very existence on that tiny little strip of land that they have. That everybody else seems to want and tell them what to do with it. To this very day, they struggle and they fight, but there will be a day when then God brings justice upon Iran and Iraq and Egypt and Jordan and Yemen. When God brings justice on Russia and China and the Koreas and Vietnams and all of the other nations, when God down, brings down judgment upon them, and then his people can finally say, oh, we're done. We don't have to fight the whole world anymore. We can finally rest. He brings rest, but also makes a light out of them. When he comes and he stands there upon Jerusalem and he becomes that light. He says, <clears throat> but my salvation shall be forever and ever and my righteousness shall not be abolished. And here this verse and in verse number eight as well, these are also encouraging verses. And notice who he's speaking to here. Just as a side note, and I know I mention this sort of thing a lot, but he's speaking to Israel and he says, Israel, my salvation for you shall be forever. My righteousness shall not be abolished. In other words, Israel, there is not going to be a time where you are cast aside never to be my children again. But also we have a more long-term fulfillment about this as well. Those tied to the earth not heaven, they're going to be cast away. The earth will vanish away. But you know what's not going to vanish away? The righteousness and salvation of God. Those things remain. God's righteousness, God's salvation are more permanent even than these heavens and earth. Stop and think about that. You know what's going to burn up when God destroys this earth? our Capitol buildings, the White House, our monuments, our founding documents, all of the classic paintings and artwork, the statues, the writings, the wisest things that man has ever come up with and recorded on book or now in video or audio. All of those things are going to pass away. Now, we know that the Word of God's not going to pass away. Not one jot or one tittle is going to pass away. But all of mankind's best, brightest, wisest, most wonderfully built, and most beautiful, that's all going to pass away one day. 
So you better go and visit the Capitol in Richmond before it's gone. Because <laughs> it's going to be gone one day. You better get up there and see the White House, you know, before it's gone. But you know it doesn't pass away. Is anything that God builds, really, frankly. But his righteousness and his salvation. We don't have to be afraid that God is going to change his character. We don't have to be afraid that God is going to change his mind about us. Oh, but God, you, you said that I could be saved and you offered me free salvation, but now you've suddenly decided to take it back? No, God's not a, a fickle toddler who can't decide whether he likes you or doesn't like you. And it depends on the minute whether or not he likes you or doesn't like you. Now, that's not the way God is. His righteousness, his salvation, his mind is permanent. And we can praise the Lord about that. That's something worth listening to. That's why he says, listen up. And then in verse number seven, we see it again. Hearken unto me. And we, he qualifies who's supposed to be listening again. He says, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. And of course, short term here, he's speaking to Israel. Long term, I think he's talking to the church too. Ye, who, ye that know righteousness. Well, that's the Christian. We understand what righteousness is, not because we found it in the Bible and now we've learned how to work righteousness. No, no, we know what righteousness is because it's been imparted upon us by God, by Jesus's righteousness being stamped upon us, not our own. That's the only way we can understand what righteousness is. Like the only way we can understand what love is, is when we learn what love is from God and then we reflect his love back out to others. So he says, ye that know righteousness, short term, that's Israel, because they were given instructions as to what righteousness was. They were given the prophets and told how they ought to live. Long term, that's us, the church, the people in whose heart is my law. Again, short term, that's Israel, because they were given God's word and they were supposed to be memorizing and they were supposed to be keeping in their heart. Long term, that's us, the Christian, because we have been given God's word and we are supposed to be hiding it in our hearts. So he's speaking to us. Listen up. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be afraid of their revilings. You know, fear not what man can do unto you. It's a New Testament version of that. It says, fear not the reproach of men. Now, I said there was a similarity uh, between verses 4 through 6 and verses 7 and 8, and there was a difference. And the difference between these two sections is in this section where he says, to fear ye not the reproach of men, neither ye be afraid of, of revilings. And I said at the beginning of this chapter that this was kind of the overarching theme of chapter 51. It is this, don't fear man, but fear God. Well, really just fear God. Fear God, and that bears within it the meaning of don't fear man as well. Just fear God. Just fear his desires. Just fear uh, you know, worshiping and honoring and living your life for him. Fear his righteousness. Just fear God alone. That's the main thing. That's really the only thing we need to concern ourselves with is fearing God. Now, fearing God underneath that umbrella is a whole lot of other things, too. Because he says to keep his commandments. You love God. If you love me, keep my commandments. We're also told to fear God and keep his commandments. You know, keeping his commandments, that's an umbrella which covers a whole lot of other things, too. Well, we are here to not fear man, but to fear God. He says, neither be afraid of their revilings. Why? He says, for the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like 
rule. Knowing the permanence of the righteousness and the salvation of the Lord, let us then compare to God's permanence the passing wickedness of mankind. You know, we can look at certain people in our society today who are well-known people who are fixtures of society, maybe. Everybody knows their name, even though they may be teaching wrong things or pushing wrong agendas. But that person is going to pass off the scene one day. You think back to previous people, um, Elvis Presley, um, uh, Michael Jackson, people like that, which when they passed away, when they died, you know, the world mourned and their, uh, you know, their funerals were televised and everybody was so sad because this great artist or this great influencer or this great basketball player or something, you know, passed away and everybody was so sad about, you know, this person dying. But then you can look back to some of the things that they've said and done during their lives and the harm that they did to society during their lifetime. But yet they passed off the scene. They're gone. The moth shall eat them up like a garment. The worm shall eat them like wool. And so we can look at wicked men alive even today who are a fixture of society, and they're going to pass away off the scene one day. There's some of their ideas may continue on, but they're going to pass off the scene. But you know what is permanent? Do you know what does not sway back and forth with time? God, his character, his righteousness, his salvation, those things are permanent. So I think if we compare the permanence of God then to the temporariness of mankind and his wickedness, why should I bother to fear man? He's going to come, he's going to go, but there is a permanentness, an eternalness when it comes to God. I really need to be fearing him instead. Someone said this, I cannot imagine a true man saying, I love Christ, but I do not want others to know that I love him lest they should laugh at me. That is a reason to be laughed at, or rather to be wept over. Afraid of being laughed at? Oh, sir, this is indeed a cowardly fear. He went on to say, yet you are a coward. Yes, put it down in English. You are a coward. If anybody called you so, you would turn red in the face, and perhaps you are not a coward in reference to any other subject. What a shameful thing it is that while you are bold about everything else, you are cowardly about Jesus Christ. Brave for the world and cowardly towards Christ. And if somebody were to come up and to stick their finger in your face and call you a coward, what would you do? Reach up there and grab that finger and break it off. <laughs> you have some other unkind words to say to them. Hopefully, as a Christian, none of those things, right? We, you know, so you can say what you want. It doesn't, doesn't, you know, make any of it true. And you know, I'll let the Lord judge you. I'll let the Lord take care of that. But you know, it gets our dander up. And we don't want to be seen as a coward. We don't want to back down from a challenge. We don't want to back down. And so, especially men, you know, we don't want to be cowards. But then at the same time, how many of us as Christians are cowards? Because we're ashamed of Jesus Christ. We're afraid to let people know that we're Christians. We're afraid to talk about him. This is indeed cowardly fear. We're, we're brave towards men, but cowardly towards Christ. But he repeats himself when he says, but my righteousness shall be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. Understanding this, that the righteousness and salvation of the Lord are permanent. 
and the opposition and mocking of the wicked is temporary. So again, we compare his permanence to the temporariness of the world. There's no reason for us to listen to the world. They're going to come and they're going to go. Their fashion trends are going to come and they're going to go. Whether or not they make fun of how we dress or how we talk or the songs that we sing or the things that we won't get ourselves involved in, fine, let them mock and let them laugh. Because there is a more permanent and eternal person that I am very interested in trying to please. Not the world, but God. Because the world ever changes, but God never does. And so here in verses 1 through 8, I find a lot of encouraging verses, and I hope you did too. Are you living in a spiritual desert? Does it just feel like you're sitting on a whole lot of cactuses, spiritually speaking? You know, confess sin and build a vibrant relationship, vibrant walking and talking relationship, a real relationship with God. And this is how you can kindle that fire in your heart to do what's right. When you build that relationship and you just pour it out to him, pour it out to him, Lord, I hate this parts and I hate what I'm doing, but Lord, I so long and desire for this. And you just tell the Lord what you so long and desire and, and the righteousness that you desire and, and the, the God's will that you desire. And you just pour your heart out before the Lord and build this vibrant relationship. No holds barred, nothing held back from him. Not that we could hold anything back from him anyways, but yet we still do. Confess sin. Confess all, all of our sins and build a vibrant relationship with God to help us to get out of the spiritual desert and wilderness where everything seems like it's against us and everything bites and everything sticks to a spiritual garden, to a beautiful place where there's life and there's growth, where God can then bless like Abraham and increase like Abraham. You've been listening to Straight from the Pulpit podcast from the pulpit of Shenandoah Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. Be sure to follow this podcast and share this sermon with a friend. And if you're listening on Spotify, please leave us a five-star review. See you next time.